and turn into the, to, in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 2, verses 18 to 13 will be our focus of study this morning. In the book of James, we've been looking at how our works fit together with faith and how our faith is worked out in our lives by our works. And we've just come off of a section where James is dealing with the sin of favoritism and showing favor to the rich over the poor within the church. And now, in this section, he broadens out his perspective a little bit. He broadens out to specifically deal with the subject of and the theme of God's law. Hence, that's why we're going to law school. Now, you can only envision this uh, sermon as one class in one course of one semester of one year of probably the seven years of law school that plus that it would take for you to be proficient in the law even in America. But in the law of God, there's so much that could be said about this. So I've really boiled it down and encapsulated it into a biblical theology of the law of God and how it's going to be helpful for us. And we see in this passage, James talks about the royal law. He talks about the whole law. He talks about the law of liberty. And so he wants us to understand what the law has to do with partiality in particular, but in general, how we are to live out as Christians the law of God. Now, from Genesis all the way to the book of James, there's been a progress of unfolding and revealing what is God's law, what He requires and how it factors into our lives. And so, I was helped tremendously this week in my study by Sinclair Ferguson's work on the Ligonier website in talking about the law of God. And he says to think of it in terms of three men in three stages or epochs that they represent, Adam, Moses, and Jesus. He says in Adam, God's covenant of works, Adam had commands that he had to follow, law from God. And these commands reflected God in His glory, and as image bearers of God Himself, His creatures, the crowning creation, mankind, were to reflect His image. And in one form or another, all of these divine uh, commands have this principle enshrined in them. You are my image and likeness. Be like me. That's what His law was intended from the garden. This is reflected in His command later in Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But then the fall happened. Radically changed the image of God and man and our ability to reflect that and even to morally reflect God's holy character. And so that fall has, instead of an intact mirror, it's now a shattered mirror still able to reflect to some degree God and His glory, but we're fatally flawed. And we need a rescuer. We need a redeemer that was promised in Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Well, progressing along to Moses on this trembling, smoking mountain of Sinai, God visits. The people can't go up. Moses goes up, and he receives from God the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, but the law of God is broader than that given to Moses. It's given to a specific people, the people of Israel, in a specific place, in a specific land. There are civil laws that are given to Israel that help them as a people 
to conduct their government. There are ceremonial laws that they go through again and again and again that point them to Christ, to the Messiah, a sacrifice that would be f- uh, for them. And then there is the moral, go- the moral law. The, the Ten Commandments summarize God's reflection of His moral character, again, that we're supposed to reflect in our activity. We'll jump forward to Jesus then. When Jesus comes, He comes to a group of people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers of that day, who had added to and misunderstood the law of God. So it was corrupted and needed Jesus to come and to bring clarity, to bring uh, proper biblical perspective on what is the law. And that ceremonial law, it's fulfilled in Jesus and His once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. All those shadows of ceremony are now fulfilled. We don't need that ceremonial aspect of the law. And we're no longer obligated to follow the, the civil aspects of the law because the nation of Israel is now expanded beyond to the people of God, the, the Gentiles and beyond. Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus came to recreate a new and true humanity marked by an internal love for the Lord and desire to be like Him. The law itself cannot accomplish that in us. It takes forgiveness, deliverance, and empowerment to do it. This God provides in Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. And listen to this. He says, The Lord of the law has written the law of the Lord onto our hearts by His Spirit. It was written on tablets of stone before, but now it's written on our hearts and it's written by the Holy Spirit, God Himself. He says, Empowered from within by the Spirit of the law-keeping Jesus, we love the law because we love the Lord. Just as in the Old Covenant, the principle of life was, I who love you am holy, love me in return by being holy as well. So in the New Covenant, the principle of life can also be summed up in one sentence. God's Son, Jesus, is the image of God in our human nature, so be like Jesus. After all, after all, our becoming like Christ has always been the Father's design and goal for us. So with that said, with that kind of biblical framework for the progress of revelation about God's law, here, James chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we approach your holy and inspired word, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word. Lord, we need that same Spirit's empowerment to hear and to obey all that you've commanded us. Lord, the book of James just really hits us in the face with how we are called to live, how we are called to obey your law. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize 
that your great grace is abundant, your grace is free, and your grace enables us to follow your law. Help us, Lord, as we glean from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if I'm truthful, as I was grown up, as I've grown up in a church and as I heard the gospel from a young age, I learned about what Jesus did for my sins in paying for them on the cross and that I had to repent of my sins, believe on Him, and then live my life for Him. But I always struggled with, well, what does the Old Testament have to do with that? Particularly, what does the law of God, what does do the Ten Commandments have to do with me as a Christian now and follower of Jesus? Do I follow the same laws or different laws? It seemed like there were so many laws and it was so confusing. And I hope it's been clarifying and helpful to understand the, the different components of the law and the, the way in which they do apply to us, but we have to unpack that further. I thought if I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, do I need to keep the law? Am I being a Pharisee or a legalist or a moralist if I, if I somehow want to strive to follow God's law? How do I avoid that trap of legalism or moralism in obeying God's law? And if Jesus didn't do away with the law, but He came to fulfill the law, how can I obey and still live by grace? Am I living by the law or am I living by grace? Romans 3.31 is, is helpful and is a guide for us. Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So let's look this morning at God's law. I heard someone say that the person who truly understands grace loves God's law. So when we embrace a proper perspective on God's law, we're going to be freed to pursue grace-empowered obedience. Let's look first at verses 8 and 9 where we see Paul or uh, James make the first description of the law, the royal law, which is summarized as love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. So this royal law according to the Scriptures, well, we saw that law actually in the Old Testament. We saw that it reiterated again with Jesus. Do you remember in Matthew 22 when a teacher, or when, a, when a, there is a, a lawyer that comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Good question. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. And this is a repetition of that, that royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The first table of the law, love God. Second table, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I want to make a clarification or maybe address a misinterpretation of this passage as it's repeated a number of times in Scripture, the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And this idea is, is this a command to love yourself? The answer is no. This is a command to love your neighbor. The natural and normal love that we have is, is for ourselves. It's kind of our default position. There's no, no lack of self-love in the world. And 
Paul warns of, of becoming lovers of self in 2 Timothy 3.2. People in their unregenerate condition love themselves too much, and, th- and that's our problem. But that's not to say that we should hate ourselves. We should view ourselves properly. How do we view ourselves? Well, we're created with dignity because we're created in the likeness and image of God. Every human being is that way. But as fallen sinners, saved by grace, redeemed people, we can see ourselves as beloved, justified, adopted, joint heirs with Jesus. That's the dignity that we have in our union with Christ. Those who are faith, have placed their faith in Christ, He's the sole source, though, of our value and dignity. We don't love ourselves in ourselves. We love ourselves because God has loved us with such a great love. So let's look two ways to look at this royal law. And the first is, it's the law of the kingdom. It's the king, the sovereign, who has the right to govern human morality. If God is the creator, he made us all. He is the ruler over us all. He, he can give us the rules that he wants because he, he made us. So, when this question comes to Jesus about the, who is my neighbor, we should understand that there was precedent for this back in Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, there were laws that were given that described how we are to love one another, how we're to love our brothers, how we're to love our mothers, our fathers, how we're to love the poor, the sojourner, how to love the worker, how to love blind, deaf. It's expansive in who we are called to love in the law. In Leviticus 19.15, it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself declares the Lord. This was not a brand new idea that Jesus brought. This has always been a kingdom principle, the royal law, the law of the kingdom. But in another sense, Jesus himself as the fulfillment, the messianic king, the royal David's seed, he is in fact the lawgiver. The law of Jesus could be the royal law. And when this lawyer came and put him to the test, what's in the law? How do you have eternal life, Jesus says, well, well, what do you see in the law? And he says, well, we're to love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus rightly says to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. If you can keep the law perfectly, you will live. But guess what? None of us keep that law perfectly, that lawyer included. And so he desired to justify himself, we're told that lawyer said, but well, who is my neighbor? If I can narrow the field of people that I need to love, maybe I got a shot. But if I got to love all those people that live against 19 says I got to love, there's no way. You don't even have a shot if you narrow it down to just the people that live in your household as neighbors, let alone your next door neighbors. But Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers, and he was beat down. And a priest passes by, and a Levite passes by, nobody helps him. 
But a Samaritan sees him, had compassion, binds up his wounds, takes care of him, brings him to a, an inn and says to the innkeeper, here's money, take care of him. If he needs more, I'll come back and give you more. And so Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor? It wasn't the priest, it wasn't the Levite, it was the Samaritan. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the royal law. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a new commandment that Jesus gives, if, that you love one another just as I love you. You are also to love one another. By this, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That, that's what makes this royal law so significantly tied to Jesus. As Christians, we demonstrate Christ as our King when we fulfill this royal law. Paul goes on to say in Romans 13, 18, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, law-keeping is not just bare duty and lists of rules-keeping. It's so integrally tied with what we love and who we love. It's tied to loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It's tied to loving our neighbor and having compassion on them. It simply is not a disassociated law of do's and don'ts. It's the royal law, the law of our king. He ties this to partiality, and he makes the point at the end of verse 8, well, if you do this, you're doing well. But it's as if James says, I know you're not doing it because you're showing partiality. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law. Well, as you think of the Ten Commandments, especially the second half of the Ten Commandments, they deal with how we love our neighbor, how we show that. And the Tenth Commandment is not to covet. And in partiality, those who were practicing partiality towards the rich were saying, I want what the rich have to offer me. So they coveted the rich over the poor. In the Ninth Commandment, we're told not to bear false witness or lie. In practicing partiality, we're lying to that poor person about their true worth. We're saying that you're not worth as much as this rich person. In partiality, we're actually stealing. We're stealing the value that that poor person has. We're actually practicing, as the Seventh Commandment says, unfaithfulness or infidelity towards those in the church we're covenanted to love, whether they're poor or rich. And we fail the Sixth Commandment by dishonoring those we are called to honor. Do you, do you see how the moral law, when we understand the royal command to love your neighbor as yourself, we fall short in keeping that? Dan Doriani in his commentary on this section says, the law embodies the love command. We love our parents by honoring them. We love our spouse by remaining faithful. We love our neighbor by respecting their property, by telling the truth to them and about them, and by willing their good rather than coveting their goods. So love your neighbor as yourself truly is a royal law standing at the core of God's law. It's this royal law that forbids favoritism. So there we have the, the royal law. How are we living up to loving our neighbor and to caring for them and not pa practicing partiality, bigotry, judgmentalism? Well, he goes on to now look at the law in its entirety, the whole law, keeping the whole law. In verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point 
becomes guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become transgressors of the law. So, we're called to keep the whole law. The standard is perfection. There's no partial credit for answers, right? You don't get partial credit for good works. No, there's no part way to murder somebody or commit adultery with somebody. We can't pick and choose from God's law what we think, oh, that's an important one, and that's not really important. Or that really is God's command, and that one maybe not so much. We can fudge on that. If we fail to keep the law, then it's more than just, I didn't follow the book. It's I haven't followed the lawgiver, the one who loved me so much to give me direction for life. I'm rebelling against him by breaking his law. I remember working in a nursing home when I was first married and hearing from one of my coworkers at their church, they had a music director, a youth director, somebody that was in ministry there. They were gifted. They were truly talented. They were doing a lot. It seems to be effective ministry there. The problem was that they were notorious for going out on Friday, Saturday nights, uh, getting drunk, and hooking up with people that, aren't, that weren't their, their wife. And so it's mind-boggling that uh, a church wasn't addressing this when it became notorious and open. And I don't know what he was thinking. Was it just that, well, I'm doing so much good for the church. I'm following, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm so uh, needed and doing good here that I, I can afford to slip up here and there on this side. I, I don't know what he thought. And before you say, well, that's one messed up church, or you say, Phew, I'm glad I, that guy is not me, let's just take a minute to apply this moral law to the deeper level that Jesus applies, do not murder and do not commit adultery. In Matthew 5.21, where he says, you've heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders is liable of the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Ouch. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Oh. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus' standard is not just the letter of the law, but what's the heart below murder? And you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the Lord takes the law to a much deeper level. The whole law requires moral perfection. You can't pick and choose what parts you want to obey. You can't see law-keeping as some of the Jews of James' day saw, well, there are real important laws and then there's some that are not so important. And if I stick with the important ones, then I can fudge on the not-so-important ones. It's, it's kind of like law-keeping or breaking is just the piling up of good deeds, and obedience piles it up, and disobedience, you know, lowers your pile a little bit, but God will certainly accept the pile at the end of the day. That's not what He says. Be holy as I am holy. He requires perfection. It's not like that behavior chart on the wall where you get stars for good behavior and you get demerits for bad behavior. That's not how God's law works. That's not how God judges Alec Motyer, in his commentary, does a good job of illustrating this. He says, no, the law is like a pane of glass that broken in one place shatters the whole thing. 
I had a remodeling job out of college that I did painting and I was working on a man's house to replace a window. I was up on the second floor on the roof outside and I had taken measurements of the pane where the broken glass was and I called down to him and he went off to the hardware store, came back with a pane of glass and I was going to put it in and glaze it and have it all finished. It was the end of the day. It's getting to be a long day. I gave him the measurements. When he came back, that piece was too big. It didn't fit. Uh, so, take it down. He goes back to the hardware store. He brings back the next piece, and that piece is too small. It just, it just doesn't fit. Frustrated, getting angry, he takes that last piece, comes back, and as he's walking up the sideway, sidewalk, I see him with the glass, and he's making his way. And I can't tell you whether the, the glass was too big or too small because in the in evenness of the sidewalk as he's carrying it along, just the edge of us ticked one of the up ends of the sidewalk and psh, the entire glass broke. That's us in regard to the law. We break one part of it, we're guilty of it all, and we stand condemned before God. God doesn't grade on the curve. And James makes it clear, yeah, Partiality is an offense to our sovereign God. You may think it fits in that category of little laws, no big deal, but this is saying, you are saying that this person is not significant. This person doesn't matter when God says he does. So as minor as we think it is, we've broken the whole law. So this moral perfection thing, it's too much. None of us are up to the task of moral perfection. And there's only one human being that ever walked the planet that was, Jesus himself. Right? So we inevitably turn to another way of dealing with our, with our guilt, dealing with this problem of law-breaking. Sometimes we'll just deny it. We'll just say, no, that wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, sometimes we will minimize and say, it's not that bad. No, it's not, not, not really that bad. Other times we'll make excuses. You, you don't understand the pressure that I was under. You don't understand my upbringing. And we'll make excuses. We'll make We'll blame shift. We'll, we'll, we'll find somebody else to blame. Minimize, excuse, blame shift, or simply just say, well, yeah, that's me, and wallow in our own sin. But God has given us a remedy, and that's why Jesus came, the one who obeyed the law perfectly. That's why we must simply repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. You may, may have heard it said when describing the gospel, don't worry you're way more sinful than you ever thought you were. Yeah, the fact is, we only know the half of it. We are way more sinful than we ever thought we are. But here's the rest of the good news. But in Jesus Christ, you're far more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. Till our sin become bitter, the gospel won't be sweet. The grace of God for us won't really hit us and impact us like it should. This is the good news, especially because moral perfection is required. The standard doesn't get lowered. We can't deny it, minimize. None of that will work. We need a substitute. We need Jesus, because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is the great exchange. Are you resting in Christ. His moral perfection 
in your place. He took the punishment you deserve for your imperfection, your sin. And are you now saying, wow, because he has done this, I'm rescued and redeemed. Well, this leads us to a new purpose of the law in our lives. The law has condemned us. The law has said, you need to be perfect. You can't measure up. And in our despair, we have to turn to Christ. And he gives us new life and a new perspective on the law. It's now for us a law of liberty because mercy triumphs over judgment. Look at those last two verses. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, James, in his typical pattern, talks about so speak and so act. Um, Like in James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Like James is echoing his brother Jesus when he says, be a wise builder who hears my word and does it. Not the foolish one who hears my word, doesn't do it. He's the one who built his house on sand and the waves and the wind beat on that house and it fell. If you're truly going to be wise, as James, Jesus, and the rest of the Word Word of God says, you need to be a hearer of the Word and then a doer. So speak and so act doing God's Word. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do that first because the law is our judge. We have to so speak and act as those who will be judged. The truth of the matter is everyone is going to stand before the king in judgment. At the great, great white throne judgment, we are going to be judged, and the law of God is going to be the standard. And we all fall short of that law. And Jesus is going to ask, you know, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was sick, did you care for me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? And many will say unto that day, Lord, Lord, what about us? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's a scary thought that the law demands perfection. And if we fall short, which we all have, we deserve eternal damnation. Let let that sink in. Eternity apart from the presence of God. But the good news for the Christian, the good news for the Christian is we have life eternal. Things are different for us because Christ stood in our place. He kept the law's demands. But now the law becomes for us a tool to become like Christ. That's his goal for us. He's justified us, declared us righteous, but he's now in that process of sanctifying us, growing us, shaping us. And one of the tools that God uses to shape you and to shape me is his word, the law of God. And in that, it's free. It's a law of liberty. And so, we don't stand in punishment. We stand now learning from his ways. In this way, we're free from the law of works, and we are free to obey the law that liberates. What an amazing new perspective that we have, that the law for true believers now, it's a law of liberty. It's not this yoke around you that's burdensome. The Pharisees made it more than it, than it was even in the Old Testament and added laws upon laws. But in Christ now, we've been given the law to free us to live for Him. Let me, let me leave you with some practical ways that the law can help you. 
In our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, of the law of God, the first five paragraphs are basically the outline that Sinclair Ferguson uses to describe how the law has been revealed and functioned in the past epochs of history. And in the sixth paragraph, the, the confession helps us then, okay, what is the law good for, for Christians? How does it help us, practically speaking? It says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to thereby be justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of informing them of the will of God as their duty. You wouldn't know what God's will was unless He declared it and showed it to us. It directs and binds us to walk accordingly. It's the royal law. It's from the king. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, their hearts, and their lives, and so examining ourselves thereby, we may become to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against our sin. When you see the law, the standard, you can see where you fall short of it. And in that mirror, we examine ourselves and we can see the sinfulness of our sin. And as bad as that is, it's good for us. It humbles us. But we can't stay looking at our sin. The confession then goes on to say, together with a clearer sight of the need that we have for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. It brings us back to the gospel of grace and then motivates us. It is likewise of use to those who are regenerate to restrain our corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show that even the sins we deserve and what afflictions in this life we can expect for them, although freed from the curse and the threatenings of the law. And then there's promises of keeping the law they show by God's approbation of obedience what blessings we can expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them from the law as a covenant of works, so as a man's doing good, refraining from evil, because the law encourages one and deterreth from the other. It's no evidence of him being under the law and not under grace. Brothers and sisters, you're under grace. You're free. You are now liberated by the law of liberty to follow His commands. It's the design that from creation He has for us. It's the method by which we understand what His image is and reflect it in our lives. It's the way in which we can become holy even as God Himself is holy. When we embrace this proper perspective on God's law, you and I, we're freed to pursue grace-empowered obedience. Let's pray. Lord, your law is perfect, reviving our souls. Lord, your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandment is pure, enlightening our eyes. And your rules are true and righteous altogether. And more to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, by them are your servants warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Amen.